number two. Haggai chapter number two will attempt to be a little bit brief this afternoon, if possible. And I know the weather's cold and nasty and outside and get you home at a decent hour. But um, there's some message that I think I've preached two other times here in the time that I've been pastor. I try to preach it about every two to three years. And uh, each time it's a little bit different, perhaps um, slightly different. But it's one of those messages that I think is is vitally important to um, be reminded of often, and maybe even more often than we should, uh, than we do uh, now. Um, and it, it's it's certainly. Uh, uh, I say I said Haggai chapter Haggai chapter one. Excuse me. Uh, uh, we'll be in the first chapter. But it's one of those uh, messages that I think is crucial to the Christian life and needs to be reminded, we need to be reminded of it often. And uh, I'm going to give you three steps that the Bible teaches very clearly that I believe are the keys to living a victorious Christian life and things that we ought to be reviewing regularly in our lives, things that we ought to be uh, pursuing after regularly in our lives um, that will help us and give us the the absolute best home field advantage, if you want to put it that way, or the best possibility of being able to live victoriously in this Christian life. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect uh, this side of heaven. We don't believe that <coughs> man can be sinlessly perfect until we are uh, in heaven one day. But uh, we do believe that we ought to be striving for the faith of the gospel. And uh, so I want to share a few things with you today. Uh, keep your Bibles handy. We'll look at a few passages throughout the day. <clears throat> Haggai chapter number 1. Let me give you a little bit of the background here. Uh, if you'll remember the story of uh, Nebuchadnezzar who came into Israel and under God's judgment, uh, he conquered Israel and took uh, some uh, folks from Jerusalem, some of the, um, the, the knowledgeable young men, if you will, from Jerusalem back to Babylon. And this is where we get uh, Daniel, the story of Daniel, the, the, the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were young men that were brought from Jerusalem under the captivity of Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon at the time, the world empire at the time. And uh, it was during the, one of the three conquering times that Nebuchadnezzar went in there that um, the, the temple was destroyed, Solomon's temple, this, this grand temple that Solomon had built, a beautiful thing. And the walls of the city had been burned down, and they had laid in ruin for numbers of years. And after Nebuchadnezzar's grandson took rule and God judged him, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians came in. And during that time, uh, we find the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel, of course, is still alive at this time. He is an old man, but uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nehemiah is the one I was trying to say. We find the ministry of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who was the king of the Persians. And um, it was during this time that uh, he got permission to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. He had the favor of the king. And there's a really unique story of uh, the part that even Queen Esther played in all of that, um, which is a fascinating story to read about. And so Nehemiah uh, begins rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. We studied that in years past, and um, and then uh, uh, Ezra comes on the scene and is the spiritual leader during that time, and great revival is brought about in the nation of Israel. 
And they began to repair the temple after they get the walls built. They got all the clutter. If you'll remember in the latter part of the book of Nehemiah, Ezra gets up and he, they found the, the book of the law. And they got up and they read it. And the people tore their clothes in sackcloth and ashes. They repented. There was great revival. They said, we're going to make God our God again. And they started uh, clearing the rubbish and the rubble and redid the foundation of the temple. And then all work stopped for about nine years. Um, the temple just sat there. And now that they had fortified walls and they were living back in the city again, uh, they kind of left God's house abandoned. They, they started work on it and kind of stopped. And that's where we pick up reading now in uh, the book of Haggai. Haggai now comes on the scene and God gives him a message for the nation of Israel regarding this situation. And so in the second year of Darius, the king, this is... Uh, the king of the Medes, it was a split kingdom, Medes and Persians, Artaxerxes was the Persian king, Darius was king for about two years uh, under the Medes. And it says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet under Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek the high priest, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, this people say, the time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sold much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste. And you run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you has stayed from dew, and the earth has stayed from her fruit. Father, we pray that you'll bless the teaching the preaching of your word, and guide and direct our steps as we look at these things that are given to us to teach us and to show us some very valuable life principles. When it comes to this living of the Christian life, Lord, may we learn from the vividness of this text how clearly it speaks of some things that sometimes we just don't think about. We just get used to. And so I pray that you'd help to have our eyes opened today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, uh, when I was a teenager, it's getting more and more years ago, it seems, as I get older. Uh, my mom and dad, they had, a, they had an old house. I remember the old house I grew up in. And they wanted to, to make it look nicer. And my dad had uh, done some remodeling on the inside. And I don't know why we did. I guess my mom wanted one. But she, they put a fireplace in our house in South Florida, which doesn't make any sense, but they did. And when he did, he wanted to put some rock on the fireplace and... It was very, very expensive to buy it back then, and so they didn't want to buy the rock. So uh, my dad and mom, one day we were taking a family outing. We went out to the ocean and walked along the Atlantic uh, Ocean there out in a secluded area, and there was nobody around, and just enjoyed the, uh, one evening just walking the beach as a family and enjoying the, the creation of God. And mom looked down, and she saw these rocks that were laying there on the sand, and she said, why couldn't we use those on the fireplace? And so they started picking up these rocks and... Uh, my dad did a, a nice thing around the fireplace, and 
My mom got to thinking about it a few months later and said, it'd look really nice if we did the outside of our house with those. And so we would take the old station wagon. Those of you that, that dates me a little bit, you remember the old station wagons. And we'd drive out to the beach two or three nights a week whenever we had some time off in the evenings. And uh, the family loved to go do this. And we would get these rocks and five-gallon buckets and walk up the sand and dump them in the back of the, the, um, uh, the station wagon. And the rest of the family had fun, but not me, because I had to carry the five-gallon buckets. And I didn't like that too much, and it was all sugar sand, real hard to walk in. And uh, you got, you know, 500 pounds of rocks. That's how strong I was as a teenager, it seemed like. Uh, see, it felt like that anyway. wasn't quite that much. So I kept urging my dad every time we'd go. I said, Dad, get as close as you can so I don't have to walk so far. And I remember one night we got there, and he saw an area that he thought he could go down. He went down and parked down into there. And so we loaded the, the, the rocks up, and it started getting a little bit towards dusk, and the mosquitoes were starting to come out. So we said, okay, that's enough. Let's go. And we got in the car. And uh, we were getting ready to leave. And those of you that have lived in South Florida know what uh, sugar sand is down there, or the beach sand. It gets really, really loose. And uh, my dad didn't go very far, about seven or eight feet, before the tires began to spin. And we're out miles and miles from anywhere. This was before cell phones and um, no no way to even get anywhere to call anybody to come tow us out. We were thinking we were going to be stranded there for the night. And I remember my dad, uh, you know, how you get, here's a young, you know, still wet behind the ear, preteen, you know, maybe 11, 12 years old kid trying to tell his dad how to get the car unstuck. And they tried everything. They, we went and found tree branches, and we jacked up the car with the back of the jack, and we tried everything we could. And, and uh, I, I was sitting there thinking, uh, my mom kept saying, every time he'd drive forward and back, uh, she would say, Honey, you're stuck in the same ruts. You can't get out of those ruts. And uh, in my little 12-year-old mind, my thought was, Well, if he can only drive in the ruts, then the answer is just dig new ruts. And, and drive off into the new ruts. And uh, they kept going. I kept saying, Dad, but Dad. He's like, Greg, be quiet. Just be quiet. For probably an hour and a half, we did this. I mean, just mosquitoes. Everybody's miserable. Everybody's hot. Everybody's tired. And finally, I, I, I got it out. I got the whole statement out of my mouth. I said, Dad, if you're only going in the ruts, why not try to dig new ruts? And uh, we, uh, he stopped for a minute. And he's sitting there, and he's, like, he's processing. You can see the wheels turning. And finally he said, let me see that shovel there. And he dug some new ruts and had them just kind of angle off a different way. And he backed up and he went and pulled straight out and went down the road. And I share that illustration. That was one of the very few times in my life I ever had an idea that my dad was able to use. But I shared that illustration, because, and I don't want you to, to miss the point because of the story, but maybe the story will help you remember the point. And that is this. It's possible to be stuck in some ruts and to not realize that we're not going anywhere than other where we've always been. We're just stuck there. We're not doing anything new. We're not doing anything different. And somebody said the, the definition of insanity is attempting the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And I would say this, that in the Christian life, it is so easy for us to get in what we would call a spiritual rut. Uh, there are things that God has given us when we get saved. There's some things that, that should be happening in our lives. One of them is we should be entering into a relationship with God that allows us <coughs> to walk with Him daily. And this relationship that allows us to walk with Him daily is something that ought to be a growing relationship. It's something that the closer we walk with Him, the more we spend time with Him, the more we'll love Him, the more we'll want to do things for Him, the more that we'll have 
<coughs> a desire for His Word and the things of God. And uh, there ought to be that, that progression in the Christian life, if you will, of our walk with God. And if there are some areas that I would say we need to be careful about in our lives that we can get stuck in a rut in, I would say one of the greatest ones is our fellowship with God, our walk with God. Uh, we can get stuck in a routine of how we go about spending time with God every day that we lose the heart of it. Uh, we lose the fact that, that we're supposed to be growing closer, drawing closer to Him each and every day. And so there's some things when we get saved. The first one is our walk with God. The second thing is we ought to be growing in His truth daily. We ought to be growing in His truth daily. <coughs> the Apostle Paul said, <coughs> "Excuse me, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that we're supposed to be growing in. The way that we do that is by studying His Word. Learning it, knowing the truth of God's Word, and that ought to be growing in our lives daily. And again, this is an area that if we're not careful, we will become accustomed to the knowledge that we have of Scripture, and we'll be content with it, and we'll say, well, I know a lot of Scripture. I told my son, in fact, this past week, I said, uh, we were driving down the road, I said, son, your dad is 53 years old. And I said, there's a lot of Scripture that I can quote. I've got a lot of it up here, and a lot of times when I need it, I can't remember it sometimes, but... There's a lot of Scripture that I've learned over the years. But I told him, I said, I have never yet in my life ever attempted to memorize just one whole book of the Bible. Just one, even if it's a small one. I said, I'm 53 years old. And I said, I think I want to try this year to just memorize one whole book of the Bible. Go, go through, even if it's a small one, even if it's, you know, Jude or something like that. I, to make the attempt. Because it, even as a pastor sometimes, it's, it's easy for us to say, I've got all this Bible knowledge. I've studied. I've learned for many years. I know sitting in the pews of a church for my dad, listening to my dad for years, I, I used to think I, I've got this vast knowledge of of what I felt was a lot of Scripture, and it was enough. But can I tell you, there ought to be a hunger and a thirst to know more. There ought to be that driving desire that I want to know more of God's truth. And I was talking with some of our men last, this past year. I said, you know, the truth is, when I was younger, I used to think I, I've got a lot of Bible knowledge. But the more Bible knowledge I get, the more I realize I don't know about the Bible. And there ought to be more of a drive and more of a hunger. And one of the areas that we can get stuck in this rut, stuck in, is, is this idea of uh, our Bible study. Uh, and then there ought to be an area of our, of our life where we produce fruit. There ought to be a production of fruit in our life. As we, as we walk with God, as we grow day by day, as we study His Word, it ought to be able to begin producing fruit in us. That fruit can be exhibited in a number of ways. The fruit can be character, and the Bible talks about in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. And that certainly is fruit that we should be bearing. But also we should be bearing fruit in the area of leading others to Christ and taking the truth to them and seeing them trust Christ as their Savior. And there ought to be this fruit that's born out. If we're not careful, we'll get to a place in our life where we're going to be content with where we're at in that area. And then there should be a, 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 an idea of pressing towards the mark and being steadfast and unshakable in our faith. Uh, to, to, in times of adversity, in times where uh, the tempting of our faith, the trying of our faith, the, the trying of our patience in spiritual faith uh, happens, to be able to be rock solid, to be able to be steadfast in those areas, <coughs> and to be growing in such a way 
that we're pressing for the mark. We're, we're, we're leaning into the, into the, uh, the reins of the, of the load and we're, we're drawing against the yoke and uh, we're running this race that the Bible speaks of that we have before us. And again, an area that oftentimes we grow lax in is this Christian life that we have to live. We, we tend to just become content with where we're at. And so two different times here, the, uh, the, the prophet of God has been told by God to say to his people, consider your ways. Why did he tell them this? Because they had, they had done just what we're talking about this morning. They had gone to a certain level spiritually. They had, they had cleared the foundation of the temple. They had done some good things. There was revival in their hearts. I believe they were sincere people. But then they got comfortable. And he goes on to say in verse number 4 of chapter 1, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? In other words, there's a work to do. There's a job to be done, and is it time for you really to be sitting around resting on the laurels of what your past victories, your past successes in the Christian life, if you will, the past revival that's been in your heart, is that sufficient? Or should there be more? In fact, he goes on to give them a stern warning about this because he says in verse number 5, <coughs> for the second time, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And here's why. Here's the warning. Ye have sown much and bring in little. You ever feel like that? You feel like you work and you work and you work and you work and you just never seem to get it? You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag of holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, I've not put my hand of blessing on you, not because you're doing something wrong, but because you've grown comfortable with where you're at. Now, the temple of the Lord today is not a structure that is built by man's hands. In the New Testament, when the Lord Jesus died on Calvary, the temple of the Lord now becomes our bodies. We are the temple of the Lord. He resides in here. Now, there is a temple the Bible speaks of in the book of Hebrews that is not built by man's hands. It's built in the heavenlies. And we're thankful one of these days we'll see that temple. But until then, we are the temple on this earth that the Lord Jesus resides in. So, so let, me, let me put it into perspective here and bring the point here. Twice now... He made the point to the children of Israel, because of your apathy, because of your contentedness, if you will, can I use that word? Because of your willingness to say, I'm, I'm okay with where I'm at, I don't need to do anything further. God said, I'm not blessing you. What does He tell them to do? Verse number 8. First two words. Go up. Go up. Can I tell you this? In order to go up, you got to be moving. You can't be sitting in the easy chair. you got to do something. It's going to take some action. Uh, I heard a, a preacher say one time years ago, if you want to affect the future, you have to disturb the present. You can't keep doing the same thing and expect something different. If you want the future to be changed, you're going to have to disturb what you're doing now. So we're going to have to wake up. In fact, over and over, the Scriptures teach about the fact, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise. He talks about the fact that we're to walk circumspectly. We're to be watchmen on the wall. We're to be uh, ever ever vigilant. We're to be diligent. We're to be watching. 
We're to be doing the work that God's given us to do. So he tells them, go up into the mountain, bring wood, and build the house. Build the house. I, this, this temple needs to be being built day by day. I, I, this vessel that God lives inside of, it needs to be built day by day. Not just physically. I, if that was all, I'd be doing great at that. I'm good at eating. It's not just physically. We're talking about the spiritual side of it. My walk with God ought to be building every day. My time of growing in God's truth ought to be building every day. My desire to, to, to see fruit in my life ought to be growing every day. My strength to hold steadfast in times of adversity, to press toward the mark in times of persecution, has to be growing every single day. And God says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. One of the most damaging things in the Christian life, I believe, is the place where we get to where we are complacent and comfortable with where we're at. And it is probably one of the most prominent issues that we face. Because there's comfort in it, isn't there? There's security in it. <coughs> it's like a warm blanket. We don't have to, we don't have to stretch our faith. We don't have to launch out into the deep and let down our nets. We can rest and enjoy just the love and the peace of the Lord Jesus. But can I tell you this? There's a race that is set before us that we're to run. There's something that God's given for each and every one of us to do. And Haggai comes to the nation of Israel and says, Because you've gotten to this place where you're comfortable, God's hand and blessing's not on you. You work, you labor, it's not enough. You eat, you're not filled, you're clothed, you're not warm. He says, Go up to the mountain. Go up to the mountain. Get the wood, do the work, build the house. And notice what he says here, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be what? Verse number 8, I'm sorry, I should have told you. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. What is our purpose on this earth? Above anything else, what is our purpose on this earth? To glorify God. If the way to do that is to build up the house this temple, then I better be doing it every day. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. When you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because mine house that is waste, and you run every man to your own house. He said, you're working, you're laboring. He said, I'm going to blow upon it. I'm going to scatter it like the chaff. The chaff is the worthless part of the grain. serves no useful purpose. gets blown away. The first thing I think that would do us as God's people well would be have reg- to have regular times of our life where we get alone in a closet with the Lord. I'm not talking about a literal room of a closet, although that's not bad either, but a place where there's no distraction. We spend some time saying, Lord, have I grown complacent? Am I pressing toward the mark? Are there some things I need to be doing? I need to consider myself. I need to have you examine my heart. I need, to, I need to question my own motives. I need to question my own diligence, my own drive in the Christian life. I'm amazed at how many people, because of various reasons, that used to serve the Lord and serve Him greatly. They used to have a great joy in serving the Lord. They've lost out on that joy because they, they quit growing, they quit serving, they quit doing anything for God. And, and they do it for various reasons. Some of them get old. Some of them get tired. Some of them get hurt by others. Some of them get uh, to the place where they get bitter about things. 
There's various reasons, but can I say this? One of the great things that, that would help from that and help us from getting to those places is if we would have moments of regular time in our lives where we would stop and consider our ways. Am I stuck in the same old rut spiritually? Am I just doing the same old thing I've always done? Or am I growing? Am I thriving? Am I running the race that is set before me? The first thing I think that we ought to look at, and the first key, I think, to the victorious Christian life is for us to have times where we set aside, where we consider our ways. We evaluate some things. We evaluate them according to Scripture. The second thing I think that is crucial, and probably more neglected than we would like to admit, is secondly, we must learn to confess our sin. And we do not have to, I'm thankful once we get saved... I am always saved. I don't have to keep my sins confessed in order to go to heaven. But when I sin after I have been saved, I break my fellowship with God. This this temple that's supposed to be being built, this walking with God, I break that fellowship. One of the most damaging things in a Christian's life is harboring unconfessed sin and not ever taking it to the Lord and confessing it to Him and getting it right with Him. It hinders, it stunts our spiritual growth. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It quenches the Holy Spirit. I want us to look at a couple of passages here. We're going to spend the majority of our time in the book of Psalm. But let's turn first of all to Second Chronicles chapter number 7. And a very familiar passage a lot of people know and can quote by heart. Second <clears throat> Chronicles chapter number 7. And verse number 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. By the way, humility always needs to be at the forefront. Shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Can I tell you this? We need to take our sin to God. We need to, we need to be able to get to the place where we say, Lord, I'm... I'm sorry for it. I don't want to do it anymore. I want your strength and help to overcome it. And so that I can be pleasing to you, that I can walk with you, that I can do your work. Now turn with me to Psalm 51. We're going to spend a few moments in looking at what the psalmist said in Psalm 51 regarding this. The psalmist certainly was a man after God's own heart. But he also was a man who was frail and sinful just like you and I. And in Psalm 51, he writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In other words, what the psalmist was saying is, Lord, this, this sin is all I think about. It's ever before me. It's on my heart. It's on my mind. I need, to get, I need to get it behind me. I need it to be passed. And I want to get it right with you. And the verse 4, he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part that thou make me no wisdom, thou shalt make me no wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be what? Clean. Wash me, 
and I shall be whiter than snow. Only God can do that. Only God can give the mercy and the grace that is needed to come to Him in prayer and confess our sins. The Bible says if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not just, it's not just getting forgiveness. But it's getting His strength and His power to do the cleansing work that is so needed in us. And He says the same here in verse 7, Purge me with this, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And here's why the psalmist wanted this. He had lost joy in the Christian life. He had lost the gladness. He had lost the sweetness of fellowship with God. He says in verse number 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. You know one of the greatest uh, causes for us becoming complacent and comfortable is the loss of joy in the Christian life. The loss of the thrill. You remember the day you got saved and the burden rolled away and boy, it just seemed like you, you were on fire for the Lord and everything was going great and you were excited about what God was doing in your life. You began to realize, boy, there's, there's, there's nothing that God can't do. I, I want to get out here and I want to serve the Lord and I want to live for the Lord and I want to please the Lord and I want to tell others about the Lord. And there used to be a zeal and an excitement, but what happened? We lost that joy somewhere along the line. According to this psalm, one of the great one of the great enemies of our joy is unconfessed sin. One of the great killers of this this diligence, this this zeal that the psalmist longed to have back in his life once again, was unconfessed sin. He wanted the Lord to search him. He wanted the Lord to purge him and wash him and make him clean all over again. Why? So he could have his joy restored. So he could have the Holy Spirit not taken from him. So the Holy Spirit could continue to work in his life. He says in verse 13, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from the blood, from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou desirest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God doesn't want our sacrifices. He wants us. God doesn't want our gifts that we can bring to Him. He wants us. He wants our heart. One of the greatest, probably the most apparent abuse of offenses in the Christian life is this lack of confessing our sin. We're content. We're comfortable where we're at. But to come to God and say, Lord, I'm not, I'm not content there. I, I want that joy again. I, I, want that, I want that zeal that I used to have. I want, that, I want that desire, that driving desire to know You more, that, that hunger and that thirst the Bible speaks of. I don't want the Holy Spirit to take His hand off of me. I, I want His leading in my life. I, I want to know what the, the Holy Spirit wants me to do. I want to know His power in my life. I want to see Him bear fruit in my life. What's it going to take? 
It's going to take coming to the Lord and saying, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. According to Thy loving kindness, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. We need to first of all consider our way. Secondly, we need to get to a place in our lives where regularly the second key to the Christian life is we need to learn to confess our sin regularly. Confess our sin regularly. And then the third one, they'll go to Psalm 119, if you will. Psalm 119, we'll look at a couple of passages here. We need to consider our ways. We need to confess our sin. And lastly, we need to learn to consecrate our will to Him. Psalm 119, verse number 5. The psalmist begins with the cry of a single letter word. Oh. Some commentators on Scripture have said that this expression of oh in the Psalms is akin to a groan of emotion. Such that the truth that is getting ready to be spoken is so overwhelming there are no words to describe. And so it is expressed in one exclamation of a sound of the soul groaning out, oh. And the deep desire that the psalmist has is all expressed in that one little word, Oh, oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. The desire of the psalmist's heart was that his ways would come under the leading of God's statutes. That his ways would become the ways that God wanted him to live. Go down to verse number 15 with me in the same chapter, if you will, same psalm, if you will. The psalmist says, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. In other words, the psalmist was saying, Lord, I've had my will long enough. And over and over in the psalms especially, we find that the psalmist expresses this this sentiment that I don't want my will, Lord. I want your will. I want you to lastly turn with me to Romans chapter number 12. Romans chapter number 12. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. There's a number of things here. First of all, I would say this. Paul is imploring, beseeching is the word that is used here by our King James translators, is more than just an asking of a question. It's more than just requesting a favor. The word beseech carries with it a strong emotion tied to it. To the point of imploring or begging or pleading, if you will. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, and then he gives reason. Paul, Paul had no reason at all to implore someone or to beseech someone. But he brings to mind and to heart the idea that great mercy has been given to our account by God Himself. And for those mercies alone, and for the sake of those mercies, it is for the cause of those mercies that Paul is pleading with these people. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And folks, if there's no other reason than to follow after the pleading of the Apostle Paul's request here, 
It ought to be because of the mercies of the Lord Jesus in our life. He says, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies. There's three words I want you to look at here. First of all, I want you to look at the little word ye. That doesn't mean your pastor. That doesn't mean your parent or your children, your aunt, your uncle. You personally must come to this conclusion and this decision in your life. God doesn't want the pastor to lay your life down on the altar of sacrifice. God wants you to lay it down. The second word I want you to notice is present. Present. When I think of the idea of presenting something, it's because it is owed to that person. I'm bestowing an honor that he is well worthy of. That you present your body. It's your body. To take it and say, Lord, this body that belongs to me, this flesh and bone that belongs to me, all that it desires, all that it longs for, the pleasures it enjoys, the burdens that it feels, I want to lay it in your hands of my free will. I give it to you. I'm afraid sometimes when we preach on verses like this from the pulpit that people get the mindset that preachers are browbeating us or trying to pound us into subjection of giving our lives to the Lord. That's not what God wants through this verse. Paul is imploring them. He's beseeching them. He's pleading with them. Based on the mercies that God has given you, would you take your body willingly not out of obligation, not out of because you have to, not out of because you've been guilted into it by your pastor or your church, but will you take that body and subject the will of that body and give it to Him altogether and say, it's yours, Lord. Because you're worthy of it. How much of you does God deserve? I know the easy answer is to say all of it, isn't it? But in our heart of hearts, Do we believe that answer? Do we believe that God has the right, that God is worthy of all of me? I like the way the Apostle Paul words this. He says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. When you think of Old Testament sacrifices, you think of the sacrifice being taken by the priest and tied and laid upon the altar. And it's squirming around perhaps and trying to get free as the priest goes to make the sacrifice upon the altar. Can I tell you what Paul presents here is something completely different. There's no struggle. There's no battle that's going on. There's no surrendering to a fight that you realize suddenly you cannot win. But it is rather a willing yieldedness. The example of our Lord Jesus Christ can be called into picture and into view for this. When the Lord Jesus said no man could take His life, but He was going to be laying it down. There's a big difference between the Lord taking us as His sacrifice And us laying it down willingly as a living sacrifice unto Him.
three keys to the successful Christian life. First of all, we need to consider our ways. Secondly, we need to be willing to confess our sin. And thirdly, we need to be willing to consecrate our will to Him. Laying it down willingly. Not out of obligation. Not out of the fact that if I don't, people may think less of me as a Christian. That's not a good enough reason. Simply laying it down because He's worthy of it. He deserves it. And it's the greatest act of love and worship and expression that I can give to Him. To say, Lord, I don't want my will. I want to take this body, this flesh nature, I want to put it into Your hands, and I want You to use it as You would see fit. It's Yours. I was flying across the state of Florida to a youth rally one night to preach. I had another pilot friend of mine, and he was flying co-pilot with me, and Brother Dick Snook. In fact, he's been here. He's missionaries that came by here a year or so ago, and he and Linda were here at our church. Dear friends of mine. Brother Dick and I were flying across in a little Cessna 206, and I remember getting across the state, and we got talking about this verse of the living sacrifice. And Brother Snook said, Pastor, he said, you know, the problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling down off the altar. He said, I found over the years, and he had been in missionary work for, at this point, probably 27, 28 years. He said, I found in my life I have to keep taking it and putting it back up on that altar. Because we are prone, are we not, to taking our will back? To saying, I want what I want. We need to learn to consider our ways. We need to learn to confess our sin. And I would say, with great importance, great importance, we need to learn to consecrate our will to Him. Lord, I want what You want. I want to go where You want me to go. I want to do what You want me to do. I want to meet the people You want me to meet. I want to speak to the people You want me to speak to. I want to say the words that You want me to say. I want to bear the fruit that You want me to bear. I want to live the way that You want me to live. I want to be the kind of testimony that You want me to be. I want to display the love of the Lord Jesus to people the way that You want them to see You. I want them to understand Your heart. I want them to understand the Gospel. And I want them to see that through me the way You would like them to see it. Lord, in every facet, every aspect, every moment of my life, I want You to be in absolute full control of it. I want it to be a living sacrifice unto You. And you know Paul said? That's just Your reasonable service. We... we, we preach on a subject like that and we think, well, that's extraordinary. That's something to strive for. That's something to attain to. That's high nobleness of character. No, no. To a Christian, that's just reasonable. That's just the norm. Three keys that I think will help us in our Christian life. Consider our ways, confess our sin, and consecrate our will. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we pray that You'll bless the message.